Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of React Roundup. We have a very special panelist episode today. So I am TJ Vantola. I've got with me Jack Harrington. Hello. And Paige Niedringhaus. Hey, everybody. So this week, we want to talk about, we're going to do a slightly different format. We want to talk about some do's and don'ts. I think we're we're going to do nine React do's and or things you should do if you're using React or in nine, well, some combination. They'll add up to nine. Do things you should do and things that you shouldn't do. And we'll see. We'll see if these are hard and fast rules or if we end up arguing about each other's picks. So <laughs> we, I hope so. <laughs> when I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev heroes aren't just people who devs admire, they're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. So we thought we'd do three each, and since I'm hosting, I'm going to claim not going first. So <laughs> Jack, uh, Jack, I'll throw it to you. Why don't you kick us off with number one in our list? Uh, okay, so my first number one here is a do. And that is to do learn how to use those dependency arrays in use effects, use memo, and use callback. Because I'll, I'll tell you what, like the number one viewer question that I get when it comes to React is issues around use effect and those darn dependency arrays. You know, folks who they have put the value that they're setting in the dependency array and they get these infinite loops, or they haven't put the value in the dependency array and they don't get callback besides the once, or they put no dependency array and they get depend and they get fired all the time. So it's, it's a really good idea to just spend some quality time with React and just go through all of that. Make a timer. I think that's the, like a number one thing to try out is actually to go and like build yourself a little timer app because that will teach you a lot about how to do dependency arrays and to do them the right way. Yeah, I think it's a hard one to learn because lots of times you can think you've done it right and you haven't done oh, it yeah. right because you almost need to like have something in there that prints to the console every time it fires. Because I think like all the time I've been guilty of this as well, where I am like, why is this page running slow? And then I realize like, oh, because this effect is running constantly, <laughs> right? right? And, it's running a gazillion <laughs> times. Exactly. And, and like... On our like high-end development browsers, it's just like, oh, sure, I'll keep running this all the time. Why Why not? But uh, I've still struggled with that. I, th I think the other thing, too, is lots of tutorials will all also only teach you the absolute basics of those mm -hmm. dependency arrays. It, where it's like, obviously, you want to run this when this changes. But like in the real world, sometimes you end up with some complicated situations where it's it's not always clear cut what you should put in there. So it's it's tough, but I definitely agree. Yeah, and because I remember it took me running into a really weird race condition in my own code that taught me that things like use state and use effect are actually asynchronous functions, even though we don't have to wait in front of them for them to run. Because I, I remember I had something that I was trying to update the state for it and then immediately look at it right afterwards and do something with it. And I couldn't figure out why it was getting state version. 
And it was because the state is actually an asynchronous hook under the hood, but we, nobody talks about that. Nobody. So I completely agree with you. Like taking the time to build something that console loves or even, I think that there's some helpers. Like, why did I re-render? There's, there's some like little helper mm. library that you can download that will help you figure out what is happening with your React and why is it possibly re-rendering way more times than you expected it based on what your use effects are keeping track of or not. Yeah, console but, log yeah, is definitely that's... your friend. And when I can find that, you know, the the why did you re-render? I'm I'm all over that. That would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'll put that into the show notes. That has definitely helped me improve the performance on applications. And so that'd be pretty well... The, the consensus seems to be yes. Dependency arrays. It's a big change, though, from if you're coming from a class-based React, where either component did mount, component will unmount, things like that. But it, even though it's, I guess, it's so much more granular, which makes it a lot easier to con- mm-hmm. happening based on only certain variables, not based on a whole ton of variables changing things like that. So, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that one. Okay, so my first pick is going to mount instead of a do. And it is going to be enzyme or snapshot tests when you're actually doing unit testing or integration testing for React. The impetus in not yield is because it has never worked well since React hooks got introduced. It was great for class-based components, did very well. The testing was pretty straight, maybe similar to what you were used to if you used Jasmine or Mocha or Chat. But once React hooks came, just kind of fell by the wayside very quickly because it wasn't prepared to be able to unit test hooks. React testing library rose to fame and popularity and has since replaced Enzyme as the de facto, but that would be my routine Enzyme as well as the snapshot uh, testing Enzyme provides because the vast majority of the time the component would and nobody would look at the tests and they would just hit you and let them all update or actually pay any attention. So, you know, what's the point? If everybody's just going to, and they're like, yes, I changed that H1 to an H2, who cares? It's like a waste of code to me. Yeah. And really, you could even make this tip just in general, try to avoid unit testing tools that are fragile because, or even just like unit testing methodologies that are fragile. Because if you end up having tests that are so flaky that you don't trust them when they do get flagged, then who needs them? So try not to focus on individual like markup elements or if they're visual tests. I haven't done any like visual screenshot tests, but I've always been skeptical of those just because I think your UI is going to change all the time. So I don't, I don't really know how well those things work, but just in general, I try to avoid testing tools that are going to be more of a headache than actually solve a real problem. All right. I'm going to play a little bit of a contrarian here. I, I'm a little bit on the fence about snapshotting. I think that there is still some value there. I don't know if there's value in snapshotting deep trees, like the H1, the H2, you have a whole like UI tree for sure. Eh. But when it comes to like maybe something that's going to be filtering customer records or something like that, and you're just snapshotting the output and that yeah, that makes a little bit more sense to me. I, I'm still, again, I could be convinced either way on that one. And then the second point, TJ, was what again? So it was about uh, huh, enzyme. Well, my oh, two, using, my point well, was just using more enzyme in general. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, no, all right. That's fine. Oh, 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 oh <laughs> no, sorry. It was visual regression testing. That's what it was. And when you're doing like, you know, like a, like a button wrapper library or that sort of thing, like you're doing your own design system. I think there's some cool value there in like a visual regression testing tool. 
But if you're just saying like, oh, I'm just going to snapshot my my login dialogue, and you know, you just want to make sure like it's pixel perfect. Like I don't think there's any value in that. But if you want to go and actually have like a visual style guide, and you want to know that okay, well, the rounding is changed on these buttons, and, and no, but nothing else has changed. I think having that visual regression thing with some fuzzy matching that could be there's some value in that. Yeah, I like that because that's that makes sense to me because you're in like a design system context, what you're dealing with is more isolated. So it's not going to be some like random user data comes in and causes things to look a little bit differently or stretch or whatever right. a bit and cause your test to fail. So yeah, I don't yeah, want my login thing to fail because like the, the button got round yours. Like that doesn't make a difference. Like it shouldn't be, a, we shouldn't be testing <laughs> that at all. Yep. Have you found any good ways to do visual? Because I've heard of a few, Perseid is one that comes to mind, but I haven't had any that are good options up to this point. I think there's something built in, oh, not built in, but there is a, a plugin for Storybook that does visual aggression testing. I don't happen to know right offhand what it is. Maybe it is Perseid, but it, I think there, there's a nice, from what I've heard, there's a really nice integration there. Yeah, the company that makes Storybook, that's their business. When, and I'm, I've got to Google because I don't, off the top of my, hand, top of my head, remember their name. But that's their like core business is the the visual testing part of things. And maybe it's a testament to that, to their to their company that how well they do open source that I can't find the name of the company on the website. <laughs> that is Chromatic. Chromatic, oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So the same the same people behind Storybook make it. So okay. Well, Chromatic, cool. you should go and hire TJ and, and get him to do yeah. your your <laughs> social networking and social outreach and your open source. <laughs> All right, so I can take number three. My first is going to be a, a little bit more of a, I guess, beginner tip, but it's don't use the DOM uh, when you're doing React stuff. I mean, this this is kind of a basic thing, but I, I still run into code that tries to do this sometimes. And for those unfamiliar, basically, the reason not to use the DOM is because React sort of manages all of that for you. And more or less, if you try to manually start tinkering with things with the DOM, there's a good chance that your changes are either going to be lost or React's going to overwrite them or something's not going to happen quite the way you expect. Uh, there are ways of doing like more sanctioned ways of doing DOM things. So you can use use ref, get references in React. That's sort of React's way of making sure you get access to that because there are still some cases where you need to get in there and do something manual, but uh, you shouldn't be manually attaching event listeners or those sorts of things. And Actually, it makes me wonder nowadays how much DOM knowledge is actually worthwhile. Because like when I started web development, that like if you were a web developer, that was your bread and butter. That's the things you were learning, how to attach an event listener and oh, yeah. how to do all of these things and, and learning the browser quirks. And nowadays, I feel like no one teaches that stuff. But do you even really even need to know it? Has it gone by the wayside? That's a really good question. Well, I mean, I think for most apps, you don't really need to know that level of detail. I found one case for still knowing some of the DOM methods like get elements by class name or get elements by ID. And that is when working with library that you're not, that is a third party library, working with something like Ant Design System or Material. It's really great when you're building components, but when you're trying to test that, like, it magics away all of the divs and <laughs> normally would be able to either put IDs on or attributes to identify them. I I and my team had to get very at being able to traverse the DOM in different directions to get children and parents and siblings and other stuff because 
we didn't have a lot of the typical ways that you would want to necessarily grab elements out of the DOM for testing in, in other scenarios. So that handy. But in terms of actually building a work, it really doesn't seem like it's nearly as necessary as it used to be. Well, and I'll, I'll say too that it's, I can't remember the last time I've needed the DOM in a React app, but you're not only going to work on React stuff, right? So sometimes you're building a random web app or I've had to use it recently when just in random CMSs, right? Like I'm in some CMS, I don't, I have to write this little bit of JavaScript code and who knows what frameworks are in here, right? So it's just, yeah, exactly. Like (laughs) if if you're lucky, there's jQuery in there, like (laughs) uh, chances are you're, you're, you're hand rolling this and just hoping you're not conflicting with something is sort of a best case scenario. (laughs) So those, those skills have come in handy, but it's, it's in situations like that. It's not in the the day-to-day react stuff. And I think there are hooks out there. There's a great library called React Use that has a bunch of hooks to do things like intersection observer and stuff that's going to watch like the the X and Y, the yaw, pitch and roll of the device and stuff like that. And it's going to insulate you from all of that that stuff and bring you still back in that world of hooks. Yeah, I, I definitely see it's, it, it is an anti-pattern. If I see it in the code, you know, chances are folks aren't doing the right thing. And another thing that I think is it's going to actually stop you from doing SSR, which is something that you know, can bite you. I'm not a huge SSR fan. I, yeah. I, I was when I was at Nike and Walmart, we had a ton of SSR stuff and it was a huge pain in the butt uh, to monitor all the servers and stuff. And But we would bring in a library and it would look totally innocuous. And the next thing you know, it would be camping on window or camping on document. And that doesn't exist in that context and then whoops can't do that and you're like wait a second this was like a, a drop down library like what the heck is it doing you know but oh no it, <laughs> it's on window for some reason and it doesn't check it so there you go can't use an ssr be mindful cool well jack you want to take us to tip number four or do or don't number four sure okay uh after the oh let me try that again all right sure yeah so after learning how to use the dependency arrays properly and understanding how to use use memo and use effect and all that, you should go and take that knowledge and make your logic and your components more reusable by extracting that logic out into custom hooks, right? You need to learn how to use custom hooks because that's really critical to refactoring out your business logic and getting it to be usable in multiple contexts. And understanding how, how and why, for example, to use use callback and use memo which are important in that case because of referential integrity, uh, can also help you learn more about the React ecosystem and how to, how to get it all working in the right way. Because underneath the hood of all this stuff, of React, is essentially a reactive state management system. And I think that's what people are missing when they just kind of look at the top level of like, okay, I only need to do like use state and use effect, and I only need like the empty variant of use effect, and that's it. You know, that's, a, that's what I had for components. And when actually, there's a lot more to it than that. And learning how to build these custom hooks will teach you all those skills. Say it's not that hard to, like we jacked through on some APIs names, but like a custom hook, the world's simplest custom hook is just a handful of lines of code. It's oh, yeah. something that you can ramp up on. And it does, it's like, a, it's a nice like intro to React intermediate concepts too. It, like you kind of have to learn some of these things that are going to help you beyond just writing custom hooks by doing. Do you have the opinion that 
every should be encapsulated into custom hooks because I've seen develop very much like you should only have custom hooks fetching data and changing state and it's almost like you make your to display components again like the functional magicking away everything hooks and not even using the basic state in your functional components i don't think so i think if you have if you have code that you actually want to reuse right then you go and build that custom hook and you externalize it you bring it up into you know like a lib directory or whatever uh, and you expect to be using it more than uh, a couple three times probably at least at least two uh, but if you're just pulling it out to like, oh, I'm, I just want it to be outside of that component, I, I don't really get the point. I mean, you are actually paying a slight overhead in that case by actually doing that you know, function. I guess if you do that on a very, very small function, you use a lot of, that's a bigger overhead. So yeah, you know, I don't think unless you're going to be reusing it, I don't really think there's any reason to do it. Cool. Paige, you want to take us to tip number five? Sure. Number five, this is apparent a lot of tips and feelings about testing i unit <laughs> tests and 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 tests and second tip is in addition to my first tip which was don't use enzyme my second tip would be to use react testing library it was a mind shift when i first started to learn how to use it because it is so very different from the way that enzyme testing but once you get into the understanding that react testing library is more like an end-to-end testing suite like Cypress would, where it, it wants to interact with the data that a user would. It makes your components better, to, makes your testing in general less fragile. Just one of the biggest pain points with Enzyme was the fact that if you change any of the underlying implementation, factoring a component or adding a new function or really changing, your tests would immediately break. The functions weren't there or different, reduced or what have you. But the nice thing about React testing library is if the functionality really doesn't, the browser, it just changes how it's teeth. It The tests stay intact, which is amazing. I having to write tests and being able to trust that my unit tests continue to function the way that they used to and cleaning up code at the same time. So that it takes a little bit of getting used to. It's very about how to test, but once you do, it's... Yeah, no, I've, I've been using it for s- several months now and really liking it. I've even used it because it's not framework specific. So in some of the Svelte stuff I've been tinkering with lately, I've just been using Svelte, you know, testing library. It's, they, they, he picked a good generic name so that it works everywhere, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, and yeah, actually, I, I love it. Yeah, I think my biggest thing was just getting used to the syntax because it's like, it's a little overwhelming when you first look at it because it's like they throw like 27 different functions you can call and it's taken me a while mm-hmm. to come to terms with that. But uh, once I figured out the basics, like you said, it's like you're almost describing what the user is doing, which is really nice. Yeah. Yeah, I love that library. It's a fantastic library. So easy to use. And I guess my only caveat would be, and it's more about just generally in unit testing in general, is you really always want to test like the the overall uh, important element or the important business function of the component, right? You don't want to go and test the actual, like necessarily the implementation. It's like, you know, I'm going to go get this element. I'm not going to go check whether it's a div or not. I don't care whether it's a div. It's it's a an element, and I'm going to go check what the contents of it are. I'm not going to go and like check every single attribute of it. And I guess that gets back to Paige's point about the whole snapshot testing thing, which is why the other half of me believes that yes, snapshot tests, snapshot tests are indeed worthless. Uh, is that you are <laughs> like you know you are specifying like the the impl- the raw implementation of that, and then then that's not necessarily what you want to test. You want to test like, hey, is the customer going to see stuff that's wrong? Right? You're going to give them like your bill is X. 
And we're going to say that their bill is zero when they should be a thousand dollars. You should probably fix that, right? But whereas, yeah, if you yeah you don't want to test necessarily that their bill is in a div versus a span versus a UL or whatever. Yeah, that's the whole thing is that nobody cares what functions are firing off. Just care that they're t- yeah. that they're correctly or they're when they click the button. So that's that's what matters. <laughs> right. I get my Grubhub. That's what's important. You know. <laughs> is my pizza going to arrive? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So TJ, what well, is cool. your sixth tip? Yeah. So tip number six is a don't. And it is another, it's a common programming saying, but don't prematurely optimize. And like I said, it's it's a generic, just sort of software advice in general. But I think to put it in a React context, that lots of times, you know, React has all these APIs and all these tools to help you write faster code. There's ways of memoizing functions. There's there's these different techniques that you can take. And I feel like sometimes people overdo that just because they know how use memo works. So they want to show it off to all their their, <laughs> their friends sort of thing. And they know how to memoize and callback things. And the thing is, like it there's a lot of value in having clean code. And if you can prevent a function from running a bunch of times, that's great. But if that function is doing a, like a, something ridiculously trivial, then so what if it's running a few more times than it needs to, if it's not affecting what the user actually sees or does? So in general, like you don't need to necessarily be debugging performance problems you don't have because the, the real truth is most of us, for most of our work, are doing things that is going to run just fine, at least at the code level. Like there, there are things worth debugging, but in the individual, like how fast does this function run? That's very rarely the thing that's actually slowing down your application. It's it's more often things like I'm bringing in way more JavaScript code than I needed, or I'm not properly like deferring when I load this. Uh, th- those are the things that are absolutely worth debugging. Things like how fast this function run. It, I'm not going to say never, right? Because there's always cases where these things matter, but no. it's very rarely your actual problem. Mm-hmm. I also think you can granularize your components too much too quickly. It's like you're, you're again, you're making that login dialogue, right? If I'm the code reviewer of a login dialogue, I expect it to like maybe be probably one file and one test, you know. <laughs> and if, you, if it's like 80 files where you've taken literally every, almost every com- part of it and made its own reusable component, if you're not going to reuse it, then then you're just making a lot of effort and you're making a lot of com- making it more complicated. And when it, when you want to change it later, it's going to be that much more of a pain in the butt. So don't do that. Like you know, if it's just Try and think about like what's the, I guess if you think about it from the atomic perspective, right? What's the organism level that you want to get to of this particular piece of UI and just kind of keep your components more at the right size of the right level? Your, what is it? Atoms, uh, you know, atoms, molecules, yeah. molecules, right? Exactly. And then organisms. Mm-hmm. And I, I always forget the fourth, whatever the fourth is. I think it's pages, but you know, it's, it's not, it's not that. It's whatever that. Are you ready for core web vitals? Fortunately, Raygun can help. These modern performance metrics play an important role in determining the health of your website, which is why Raygun has baked them directly into their real user monitoring tools. Now you can see your core web vital scores are trending across your entire website in real time and drill into individual pages to focus your efforts on the biggest performance gains. Unlike traditional tools, Raygun surfaces real user data, not synthetic, giving you greater insights and control. Filter your score by time frame, browser, device, geolocation, 
whatever matters to you most. And what makes Raygun truly unique is the level of detail they provide so you can take action. Quickly identify and resolve front-end performance issues with full waterfall breakdowns, user session data, instance-level diagnostics of every page request, and a whole lot more. Visit Raygun.com today and take control of your core web vitals. Plans start from as little as $8 per month. That's Raygun.com for your free 14-day trial. Yeah, that's that's like almost like a similar but related is like don't prematurely make everything a component. Prematurely yeah. componentize if that's if that's <laughs> a thing because we've all worked with a person who just likes to feel fancy and like <laughs> implement something is like 27 files that depend on each other <laughs> when really like it could have fit in like two files quite easily like you know, the reason yeah. you're supposed to create a component is because it it's an isolated unit that can run on its own. So if it's only just one thing that sits by itself that does one thing for one page, chances are it probably could just stay right in right in where it was. You don't have to get too fancy. Yeah, yeah my manager. Like nested ternaries. <laughs> nested ternaries, <laughs> switch statements. My manager right. with, uh, yeah, me, the Yagme is going to need it. And I try to keep that in mind when I'm writing new features is how we need to abstract this or make this flexible versus how often do we really think we're going to be reusing this piece of code or this component. Yeah. I think the one of the worst things I can tell you in a code review is that's cute. And I mean, in the kind of worst way, which is like, ooh, I don't know if I would have done it that way. And that's not obvious to folks. It's like the, the nested ternaries. Like, you could make it just so much more easy to to maintain by not being cute about it. Well, it's funny. I think that's one thing that comes with experience as well. Because I remember when I was younger, I would think it was really cool. Like, oh, I solved that in one line, right? Like, oh, and you'd no. be like proud of yourself, right? Because you came up with some clever way of looping over that array. And then over time, you come to realize that like, okay, but like, I no one else is going to know what that line does. <laughs> I won't know what that line does a week from now, right? I'll I'll totally forget. So yes. you know the and the compiler won't care. The compiler is going to put it down to x number of characters anyway. So it's almost always worth split it out, be verbose, don't be cute or clever. Like those those things are not worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't overuse reduce when it comes to arrays. I've seen so many times where folks are like, oh, look at this cool. Reduce of a re- of reducers, and you're like, oh my god, I can't even understand. Like, what are you doing? All I want, all you need is like the, I, the I minimum have, of these numbers. Just call math min. Yeah, I have to look up reduces. The the way to write a reduce every, pretty much every time I write one because I always forget the syntax. Yeah, same. Easy at all for me. I believe that's the one where somebody somebody has a Stack Overflow post that's got like thirty seven thousand upvotes because they they wrote it in a really clean way and it's got on the top of Google. So I've I've been there a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It it is possible to write all of the array functions, filter, map, all that stuff as a reduce, but don't do it. (laughs) Right. That's that's not a good thing to do. If you're doing a filter, do a filter. If you're doing a map, do a map because that tells the other engineer like, hey, you know, that's what I'm I'm intending to do here. Yeah. Well, cool. Uh, Jack, why don't you take us to tip number seven? And you should make it a controversial one too. We haven't we haven't been controversial. Like, oh, I'll bring the controversy. Choose like you ready? Your spaces and let's do this. <laughs> okay, let's do this. Use TypeScript on the UI level. I've heard this. I have I've heard that a lot of chatter about like, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I've heard a lot of chatter a lot from I guess backend folks who are like, 
TypeScript shouldn't be on the UI. It gets in the way and all this sort of stuff or whatever. And you're like, you know, it's not the right environment for it. And it, it is, it is, it saves my butt all the time when it comes to coding on the front end. And there is just, if you ever have a chance to look at the actual TypeScript definition file for all of the stuff that's in the DOM, it is incredible. It is voluminous. And the great thing about having TypeScript on your side is that when you hit, you know, window dot, right? Not, okay, TJ, yes, true. We shouldn't be doing that <laughs> in the React context. I get it for sure. But if you actually need to, right, it's going to hint you as to what you're doing and making, making sure that you're making the right call the right way. So I, I but yes, I hope it's controversial. Let's, let, let's, let's go. TypeScript. I only push back is like a blanket thing. So I think most most people, it makes sense. If you're in any sort of bigger apps, I think TypeScript is a slam dunk. Like if you're working on a, any sort of a decent sized team, I still think that like small, there are certain small apps that can get away without using it. Like it's, it, it's beneficial, but there is some complexity of you have to manage some configuration, your build has to account for it. There's, there's some small things that, that I sometimes don't pick TypeScript in small projects that I do here or there. So my only pushback would be as like a blanket rule. Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, I can, I can certainly see that. Since TypeScript is a safer set of JavaScript, it is essentially the same thing, but it's still, there's still a learning curve to it. So even if you know JavaScript and you're pretty proficient in that, trying to figure out why your compiler is yelling at you and why it won't compile <laughs> at all when you're trying to start off with TypeScript is really frustrating, or it can be. And this is me speaking from personal experience because I've just started working in a project that is mostly TypeScript. So there can definitely be those question mark moments of why in JavaScript would be absolutely fine with this. Is TypeScript so unhappy with, with this code that I'm writing? But at the same time, I have seen some of the benefits of it, like errors that JavaScript would just and would throw an undefined and then break. Or autocomplete is a lot nicer because mm -hmm. TypeScript knows exactly what should be in that function. Parameters should be on that property. So there are definitely benefits to it, but, you know, there's still more to learn. And I guess to the same level of proficiency is in a in development team. But it seems like it's picked up enough steam, I guess, and, and community that I think it's probably a pretty safe bet if you're going to go with anything. Like, I think maybe it was two or three years ago, there was something to compete with TypeScript. Maybe it was CoffeeScript or it was some Whoa. other subset. Yeah. And it was popular for about a minute and then it disappeared. <laughs> you took the time to learn it. It wasn't the best time that you could have spent, but agree. It seems like TypeScript is here to stay. So it's probably a pretty safe thing to go ahead and run. Weirdly, occasionally, I do see an article here or there about an update for Flow that adds this this thing or that thing. And I'm like, wow, okay. <laughs> that's that's still a thing. That's still out there. There is it's a risk, I guess, yeah. to like, <laughs> it's still out there. It's still going. There is a risk with TypeScript to get cute again, right? You can take that generic stuff and you can go way, way out on the complexity curve and you oh, hey, you know, you don't need to go there, right? I would say 99% of applications, you probably don't even need to make your own generics. There's, there's already good ones out there. I mean, I think that there's some, some decent cases around like generic components, right? The reusable ones, like a drop list or something like that, where you give it the list of items and it automatically makes sure that like when you get the callback, you're getting the right item type and stuff like that. That's cool. But like beyond that, it just, just, yeah, it just, just back off the generic complexity just a touch. Even if you can, maybe it's not, but it's not great to be that cute. 
Awesome. Well, Paige, you want to take us to, to number eight on our list? Sure. So number eight is a recommendation that I have, which is to use a design system library. And I really don't care what library you choose. It could be Material UI from Google. It could be Carbon from IBM. It could be Ant Design, which is their own company. But it really helps to make your project or make multiple projects if you work in a large organization with lots of development teams making things. It, it really helps set a consistency across them. And not only that, in terms of the look and feel of, of your application or your website, but it makes it a lot easier for both the development and the design teams to know what components they have at their disposal already, how they work out of the box. And it makes it a lot easier in terms of not having to reinvent the wheel every time you need an input box or a stepper component or a tree or or a table. God, tables are the worst with all the filtering <laughs> and ways you can sort tables. Yeah. Yes. Tables are just awful to try on your own. So I would really, really encourage possible to look at libraries and just pick one and, and use it because they are so helpful. Amen. Absolutely. 100%. Totally yeah. agree. And what you're getting there is you're getting documentation, you're getting support, you're getting you know, reference code that you can look at. You're getting Stack Overflow. You're getting all this stuff. And I and I saw somebody on Twitter just recently say, oh, I don't know. Am I going to go make like, I'm going to use Tailwind to make my own button stuff. And I'm like, oh my God, please don't. Just use Material or Chakra. I mean, these things, these are, these are yeah, okay, fine. Material's big, but you can tree prune it and get down to something, you know, reasonable. But at the same time, you're getting, at, you're getting accessibility. You're getting all of that. And these are the well-tested, battle-tested components. You can skin them however you want. You can make them look however you want. Just, I couldn't be more of an amen on that one. 1,000%. One, 1, yeah, accessibility is another huge one because especially when you get into the more advanced components, oh, getting yeah. that right yourself is... Oh, good luck. Very, very difficult. And I'd say, too, that... Yeah, another thing that I recommend a lot is if, because lots of times the pushback, and Jack, you got into this, is like, well, I don't want my app to look that way, is, well, you can build your own design system that's just on top of one of these existing ones. And it's CSS. You can make the thing look totally different if that's what you so choose, right? So you can build on top of and on top of material, but have like your own layer, right? For mm -hmm. your company, for your team, for whatever, that gives it its own unique look and feel. And that's the that's a really good bet for most companies. Like, unless you're like, if you're if you're like approaching Facebook scale, then like sure, you can throw a ton of engineers of making your own stuff and you can probably have enough money to do that right. But for for most people, like your prime company, like the Home Depot, Nike. People aren't coming to the Home Depot or Nike because they have really good date pickers, <laughs> right? Like that's not that's not why they're there. They're there to buy shoes or hammers or or something. So you're probably better off just using a really good date picker that somebody else built. And if you want to make it look Nike, like Nike probably has a look and feel for a date picker. Oh, they right. do. Like, oh, they right. do. Yeah. And, and and guess what? Here's the little I'm a little bit of the social just you know social <laughs> verification for you on this. I can I personally know that when it comes to the back end admin apps at Nike, it is material UI that is reskinned with the Nike, you know, the black and the yellow or the neon or whatever it is color scheme. And it looks just like Nike. But yeah, I, there's 
15 teams on that thing. And that is, it's a, here's, here's another thing. It's a debate that they don't need to have. Right. I yeah. had so yes. many debates over how a DSL should be constructed and this and that you, you use material and that's, that's other people's problem. That's not your problem, right? You don't have to debate on whether the button mm-hmm. should have these props or that props or whatever. Who cares? Right? It's all there. It's all done. And then you can elevate the level of the debates, which you're going to have anyway, but you can at least get them out of that <laughs> DSL level and up to like, I don't know, feature level, you know, which is kind of a debate you <laughs> wish you had. Well, Jack, I'm going to go segue off that because that segues into my, my last tip, which is another do. And it's uh, similar actually to pages. So this flows really well, but do use tools to help you enforce consistency throughout mm. your organization. And this is kind of stealing from page two, because I stole this from her material. I think, I think Paige has like a <laughs> course where she, she teaches off this. So, so this is, this is much along those lines, but the, the basic idea is programmers love, love to nitpick and get into silly little arguments and, Usually from like a productivity perspective, those are not arguments you want to have. I mean, some oh, people, no. some people clearly like having them and they have fun with them. Uh, but from like a productivity perspective, arguing over tabs versus spaces, I mean, that's the classic one. But even things like, you know, what should our line lengths be? Or I don't know, help me. What are some of the more trivial things that, that we get into? Oh, uh, which, oh, which is it the, the curly on the end of the double. line? Yeah. Yep. Curly at the end, single quotes, double quotes. How many like spaces should you put? Like if you write an if, is, is there a space between the if and the first opening parenthesis or, or not? Like I've had that <laughs> that conversation before. That's fun. Oh, well, yeah. Right. You know, my favorite is between tabs and spaces. Whatever prettier says it's supposed to be well, because it's going to do that yes. for me and I don't care. Right. It's I don't want to have that conversation, please. There, these are not languages that have significant white space. It's not like we're doing Python, right? That actually, I guess it matters to a certain, I, you know, I, yes. I think it handles both, yeah. but it matters. Whereas in JavaScript, it doesn't matter. It, it, it's mm-hmm. all going to get uglified, minified anyway, and it's going to go away. Yep, exactly. So whatever tools those are, uh, Prettier is, is quite good at what it does. Um, there are other tools out there. Uh, you could even do things like, I mean, the best in terms of the best way to enforce this. I'm not sure what what people use nowadays. I've had like pre-commit hooks in place before that like wouldn't mm-hmm. let you commit stuff. Like it would actually run run your you know pre, your, whatever your linter is, whatever it happens to be, and say if it fails this, you just <laughs> you just like straight up can't commit it. There's different ways of enforcing it because uh, the other thing, the other reason to do this is that it's far easier to have computers yell at people than to have people yell at people because mm-hmm. no one wants to be the person that goes over to Jill or James desk. And well, I guess it's virtual now. So I guess that metaphor doesn't work anymore. <laughs> they like pass the ping that person on Slack and, and Which is say, the best place to have a controversial conversation. About yeah. Them. Oh just, yeah, sure. So, yeah. so yeah. succinct. I mean, like, so hey, many emotional cues that you can get from, from exactly. Games. Hey, do you have a second? I need to talk about your, <laughs> oh, uh, I need to talk about your spacing patterns you've been using in your commits oh, no. lately. Like it's just awkward for everybody, but it's, if a computer sends a message that says like, Hey, you can't do that. Then like, that's just the policy and you follow the policy yeah. or you, you don't get your code in the, the repo. So it's far, far easier. Yeah, you don't want to be that person. Even better, on the team. if you can just like <laughs> right, and just like Paige said, you know, when it came to material, right, you're you're picking up somebody else's work, right. You can do the same thing with these standards. You can pick up Airbnb's ESLint standard and just be like, you know, it's their problem, right? 
it's good enough. It's close enough. Let's not have three weeks worth of debate about, you know, what the, the ESLint standard should be and do all these tweaks and whatnot. Let's just pick up something off the shelf. And then we don't have to have those debates. Well, yeah, and, and you know what's funny is like the that's the beauty of something. I know I I don't know what's going on with this play, but that's the beauty of the something like ESLint. <laughs> <laughs> that's the beauty of ESLint, though, is that you a pre-configured Airbnb extend it, and then you can decide what are the rules that my team really doesn't care about, and turn those rules off. So it's really easy to configure it to exactly what your team needs, but you have a really good starting base to go from and then decide, yeah, this doesn't really apply to us or to keep enforcing that. It's really easy to get started with. And then you just kind of trust it until it's for you and your team. And I, I'll say too that tabs versus spaces is always the joke, but my preference on that has actually changed over the years because what I found is that whatever standard my team has had in place, I eventually come around and then that becomes my preference because Back in my early Java days, everybody used tabs. And so when I didn't see tabs in there, I was really got, got like upset. But then as I started to do more JavaScript stuff, spaces was forever even more common. And then two, I always liked four characters for spaces. But then lately in the JavaScript world, see, people seem to like two, like that just seems to be more common in docs and stuff. Yeah. So I started doing that. And now that's what I prefer just because yeah. like, that's what I got used to. So I think like, You'd be surprised how much, even if you feel like really strongly, like I can't believe anybody would ever use tabs for indentation. Like you'd be surprised if you do it for a while, how much you just adjust and your personal preference and approaches just shift. It's not, it's not as important as you think it is. (laughs) And I think it's really important actually, as you go through your career and you go through multiple languages, not that there's JavaScript isn't going to last forever and JavaScript is going to end up being the only language we have, but maybe, maybe. You change languages and you really should spend the time to like learn how to program in those languages. I have seen so many folks try to get like C and go or or Java and think that like TypeScript is gonna give them basically Java on JavaScript. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's that's not at all it at all. Right. There's closures and there's all this stuff. You really have to understand. Like you are in JavaScript. And if you don't treat JavaScript like JavaScript, it's it's not going to treat you well. It's not going to feel happy about that. So don't do that. But I got to say, so Paige, what is this course? I really want to know. That's a wonderful. So the course that I'm working on is for a company called New Line. And they are a, a massive online platform web development learning. They saw three Angular, React, you name it. They're, they've probably got some author of it. But the course that I'm writing is one that I didn't see, which is how to modernize large React, because all the tutorials that exist today are from the newest, greatest version of Creatively. You've got hooks, you've got, <laughs> you've got linting and, and Prettier and all that stuff, and it's just ready to... But a lot of people don't inherit that when they join a large new team. A lot of times there's an older application, maybe it's React, I hope it is, but it could be several versions out of date. It could have no testing framework or very few tests. It could have very few ways of configuring it, the tooling that we talked about. So my is how to take an option that maybe is not up to standards and up to par of today's coding standards and modernizing it. So it goes through everything from taking an old version of React and bringing it into the world of hooks and then refactoring class-based components to start using hooks instead, adding things like unit tests and end-to-end tests with React testing library in Cypress, 
bringing in tooling so that everybody is working on the same versions of Node, the same versions of NPM. They have Prettier, they have Linting. They have all these things that are just kind of the de facto standards now, especially for large mission-critical applications. And it's it's a, just a course on how to how to go in and make things better than when you found them. I think that's amazing. And I, there's so many folks out there who are junior devs who are looking to understand how to get from junior to senior and to lead and architect and principal. And a lot of that is about code stewardship, right? You are the steward of technology for that team or that group of teams. And they're going to be looking for you to manage, okay, you've got some tech debt time here. What are we going to do? And you need to prioritize like, hey, I, you know, we're going to go and do this class conversion to functions on this particular library. Or we're going to go to a monorepo or whatever that is, you know, and I think that's your course sounds like a fantastic way to learn what you need to do and also why you need to do it. So I'm, I'm excited. Sign me up. Yeah, I see where you got your do's and don'ts from now, though. <laughs> you, you, you cheated. Oh, hey. I've had a lot of time to think about it. <laughs> I think this is fun, though. I think the, I, I love the fun. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, this, this is good. Let's do it again. Hey, folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump on real quick and let you know that I am putting together a podcasting course. I get asked all the time. I've been coaching people for the last six months. How do you start a podcast? How do you put it together? What do I need in order to get it going, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I've put together the curriculum, and I did it through coaching a whole bunch of people, and now I want to share it with you. You can go check out the course. It's actually going to be a master class. It's going to be a four-week master class where I actually walk you through the entire process of launching a terrific-sounding podcast and putting together content that people want to listen to. And you can find it at podcastbootcamp.io. Well, cool. Now that we have our, uh, well, I feel like this is like almost like bonus picks around because we've, we've like picked some random tips, but why don't we move into our picks picks? And Jack, do you want to kick us off? Sure. I don't know if I've picked this before, but I really enjoy the heck out of a game called Hades that came out. Uh, it's it's kind of a mm, two and a half D kind of side scroller thing. But my daughter and I were playing it for a little bit. It's it was it was fun. The only my only gripe about it is there's a lot to read, and I'm dyslexic, so that's not exactly you know my bailiwick. But you know whatever, it's it's cool. Uh, it was just it's a game that has a lot of strategy to it, and if you're doing like a if you're into like I don't know, collectible card games, like a magic sort of thing. You know, there, there's an element to it where you have to like pick the cards that you're going to use and you have to adapt your strategy to the cards that you get dealt or you deal yourself. And, and Hades has that, you know, each time through the dungeon, essentially, whatever it is, you get different skills and you need to adapt your play to those. And I think it's just a really interesting dynamic, just a lot of fun. It looks interesting. What what systems is it? On? Oh, it's on everything. I think I think we were playing it on uh, Xbox One. I think it's okay. On, okay, that sounds really good Steam for and, and does replayability. Yeah. Oh, it's, oh my god, it's so much replay. You want a good? Sure. So something that I've been watching recently and getting a lot of enjoyment out of is a show that I think just recently came to Netflix called Versailles. And it is about the actual building of the Versailles. Well, it's it's the building, but it's also all the drama that was happening in the 1670s and 80s when the Palace of Versailles was originally being created by Louis XIV. And all the intrigue and drama and gossip of the court that surrounds him. So it's 
it's quite good. There's three seasons of it on Netflix and there's romance and murder and all kinds of, you know, things, countries going to war with each other, all sorts of, of interesting things. So it's definitely been one that keeps you clicking. Yes, I'm still clicks when after five episodes. Very fun. I, I will have to check that out. It's one of those places that's, I don't know, it's very intriguing. Yeah, I love architecture stuff like that. Yeah, this is going to go on my list for sure. Oh, and by the way, I, I've been reading your book that you recommended last week. Not oh. reading it. I was listening. Oh, nice. To it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, same, yeah. same difference at the end of the day. Oh, yeah. yeah. You might pass me. I've gotten. I, I've went in. Uh, I'm on book two. So I. I oh no. Okay. I'm on book one. <laughs> okay. I'll I'll pick the series again if it ends up being good, and then I'll. <laughs> I'll forget all about it. If it, if it sucks, I won't, I won't uh, subject our audience to it. So <laughs> I don't know how they're going to make a movie out of it, but you know, whatever Yeah, it's going to happen. Yeah. It's YA got to make a movie about every YA. Oh yeah. If there's like a series, a youth adult series that like gets traction, like, oh man, it's oh, like, yeah, you're done. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I am going to pick up. Po- this is the podcast I've actually picked before. It's uh, called land of the giants. It's a series that they cover different tech companies so they've done they've done google they've done facebook and i'm picking them again because they're starting a new season up to cover apple and so i've enjoyed it they're just one episode in but the first episode was quite good and i listened to it today so if you like the sort of like background behind tech companies it helps explain kind of where they got to today and then some of the drama that's going on in each of these companies now it's it's some fun background and listening material so you, if you like the Apple stuff, I'd recommend going back and listening to some of the the old stuff, the back catalog as well, because it's pretty good stuff. Sounds very cool. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, this is a fun format. So you'll, yeah. have, you'll everybody will have to let us know if you like this sort of thing. We could we could do this again sometime because I, I had a lot of fun. I did too. Same. Cool. Well, thanks everybody for joining us. And until next week. Yeah. See you next week. See ya. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.